Let us now take our copies of God's Word together and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. First Thessalonians chapter 2, looking this evening at verse 13. And just now, let us join our hearts together in prayer, asking for God's blessing. Great God, as we sing together, I pray now, take my lips and let them be filled with messages from Thee. Be in our midst now, O God, and open our eyes to see the glory of Jesus Christ, crucified and raised in the pages of His Word, and make us to feed upon His Word and to love Love your word, as the psalmist did, knowing that it is sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Glorify your grace in this assembly, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. On one of his missionary journeys, the Apostle Paul spent over a month in the Greek city of Thessalonica, preaching the gospel and getting the church there established. Here in his first epistle to the Thessalonians, Paul recounts how this young church responded to his ministry when he was with them. Paul's ministry to these believers bore fruit by God's grace. The way in which these Thessalonians received Paul's ministry was evidence of the supernatural, life-giving grace of God. As Paul writes to these young believers, they are being pressured to reject the message that Paul proclaimed to them. At at this time, the non-Christians in Thessalonica were telling these believers, Paul is no different from all the traveling philosophers and orators who go from town to town delivering their message looking for money and personal gain. That's why Paul's not with you anymore. Why should you care about his message? These non-believers were telling the Thessalonians, all that stuff that Paul said about Jesus, that's interesting, that's fine if you're into that sort of thing, but it isn't real. It's not the truth. It's not from God. It's not anything you need to believe or obey or dedicate yourself to. But notice this. It's like the Thessalonians were saying in response, actually, that's exactly what Paul's message about Jesus is. It is the very truth from God himself. The Thessalonians knew there was something different about Paul's message. All the nonsense that all the traveling philosophers and orators would have shared in public, everything they said had one thing in common. It was all the opinion of sinful men. But when the Thessalonians heard Paul proclaim the suffering and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they knew that this message was like anything else the world has to offer. They knew this message wasn't the opinion of any man. They could hear the voice of God himself in the supernatural life-giving message. 
They knew this was a message that demanded a response, that we are to turn from our selfishness and idolatry and turn to the living and true God who alone can save sinners. That is how also you and I must respond to this supernatural life-giving message. Paul mentions their response back in chapter 1. Look there in verses 9 and 10. For they themselves, the surrounding Greeks, report concerning, concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That was the consequence of the reception of Paul's message. So you also, if you receive this message of God's grace for sinners, you are delivered from that coming wrath at final judgment, and you are destined for dwelling with God in glory forever. If, however, you reject that message of God's grace for sinners, you are destined for that coming wrath, and you will have no one to blame but yourself. This supernatural message is what you and I need most. Receive the Word of God to serve the living and life-giving God of the Word. So let's look at this first of all, looking at something to thank God for. Something to thank God for. That's at the beginning of chapter 2, verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this. So here we see how Paul and his missionary companions are grateful for how the gospel of Christ redeemed and changed the Thessalonians. They heard the proclamation of Christ crucified and raised, and instead of rejecting that message, they accepted it. For that reason, Paul and his missionary friends are constantly grateful to God. Think about this. Paul has suffered much for these Thessalonians. You see how Paul's missionary journey progresses in Acts chapter 17. The Jews ran Paul out of town when he preached the gospel, and not only that, the Jews ran Paul out of the next town that he fled to, Berea. Think also of, of all that Paul suffered when Christ appointed him to take the gospel to the nations, that sobering account in 2 Corinthians 11, as Paul boasts in his weakness that Christ's power be manifest in him. Far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. This, remember, is the great and learned Saul of Tarsus, who gave up an enormous reputation and a life of ease for the greater riches of serving Christ in suffering. How many of us would tend to think that with all this hardship, there could be nothing to be grateful for. But that misses the reason why Paul is constantly grateful to God here in verse 13. There is a supernatural reason for Paul's incessant gratitude in the midst of hardship, 
it is because Paul got to see with his own eyes the life-changing power of God's grace. Even in the midst of hardship, to see that sinners have turned from their sin to trust in Christ, receiving the fullness of his benefits, that is something to thank God for. Even though he has suffered and been shamefully treated, Paul can still be constantly grateful to God in the midst of that suffering and shameful treatment. All the more evidence of how Paul's message is supernatural and not his own opinion. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ, crucified and raised, can replace our grumbling and entitlement with contentment and gratitude. Only God's grace can work such transforming power in sinners like us. As long as your fellow believers are walking in the truth, we have something to thank God for. And all this shows us that we are not dealing with man-made opinion. We are dealing with the word of the living God himself. That leads us secondly to see accepting God's word, accepting God's word. That's in the next part of verse 13. That when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. This again is why Paul is constantly grateful to God, even in the midst of his hardship. The Thessalonians accepted the living, life-giving word of God. They were redeemed in accepting it, and they were standing firm because of it. This is a rich statement here in verse 13, and it shows us two important things. It shows us, first of all, what the Bible is, and shows us what the preaching of the Bible is. So verse 13 shows us what the Bible is, first of all. The Bible is not the word of people. It's not the religious opinions of men. It is not backward, oppressive moral teachings of the powerful. It is not ancient stories, not a fallible, contradictory human witness to vaguely spiritual feelings, experiences, or events. In contrast to all those false opinions, the Bible is the Word of God Himself. Think of those other rich passages that tell us what the Bible is. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed. Paul there is talking about how the Bible was written by God. Yes, God used men to write His Word, but He does not say there in 2 Timothy, the Bible is the Word of God and man. He does not say the Bible is God and man-breathed. It is God-breathed. This is about the origin of Scripture. It came from God. Both in its diversity and its unity, it comes from the hand of God. Both the 66 individual books and the collection of those books into the one canon, it is all the product of God and not men, not even the church. It is of divine origin and therefore has divine authority and effectual power. Think also of 2 Peter 1. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So there Peter is emphasizing the same thing. The Bible is not the result of human investigation into the nature of things. The Bible is not a religious journal, a religious autobiography. It's not the product of man's religious experience or thinking. There is no aspect of the Bible that originated with man. It all originates 
from the living and life-giving God. It is from God, not men. Yes, God did use men to write his word. Moses, Isaiah, Matthew, Luke, Paul, Peter, John. And as God used these men to produce his word, he used the personality of all these men, their backgrounds, their educations, their style, their vocabulary. And amazingly, the different books of the Bible all bear the characteristics of the humans used to write them down. The style of Paul is different from the style of Peter and from John. But for all of this, the Bible is not the word of men, it is the word of God himself. God is the ultimate author, and he used various secondary authors to produce his word and no one else's word. It was God who produced his word by means of human authors. When Peter says there in 2 Peter 1 that men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, that's the same language that Luke uses in Acts 27 as he tells us how Paul's boat was driven along during the storm. Just as the boat is driven along in the storm, so the authors of Scripture were carried along by the Holy Spirit to write what God wanted to say. That is the imagery that helps us to appreciate in the writing of Scripture, God is active and man is passive. God is the one producing his word. Man is the one used to produce it. So the Bible is word for word exactly as God wishes to say it because it is God's word. Think also of Proverbs 30 verse 5. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. So there we're seeing more the connection between the Word of God and the God of the Word. Because God is the truth, His Word is true. In its overall teaching and in every single word, the Bible is true because the Bible is the Word of God. So all these things are, are assumed, are emphasized as Paul makes his statement here in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. He's emphasizing to the Thessalonians his message was not his own opinion, the word of men. We, we didn't make up the things we said to you, beloved Thessalonians. Our message is the word of God himself. It all came from him, it's all about him, and it's all for his glory. The apostles, functioning as ambassadors of Christ, proclaim only what Christ reveals to them. And because the proclamation of the apostles is from Christ, it must be received, and it also will work. Herman Ritterboss puts it this way, as apostolic tradition, it is the word of the living Lord. It is the authoritative word from Christ about Christ. Notice again there how Paul puts it in verse 13 when he says, you accepted it as what it really is, the word of God. That's what the Bible really actually, truly is the sufficient, necessary, clear, and authoritative voice of God himself. As our confession summarizes it, chapter 1, paragraph 4, the authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, depends not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore it is to be received because it is the Word of God. 
So in addition to this, well, this statement in verse 13 shows us what the Bible is. It also shows us what the preaching of the Bible is. We, we need to have a high view of the Bible, not as inspiring words about God, but the inspired Word of God, the living and life-giving Word of God Himself. And for that reason, we must also have a high view of the preaching of the Bible as well. Maybe preaching makes one think of an oppressive man making a power play, spewing his backwards opinion to manipulate people into living inauthentic lives. Maybe preaching makes one think of the especially boring part of the church service where you might be able to, to take a nap. The, the problem with such and, and like views of, of preaching is this. These all fail to appreciate that something supernatural is happening in the preaching of the Word. Something supernatural is happening in the preaching of the Word. Just as the Bible is supernatural, it is God-breathed, the preaching of the Bible is supernatural as well. At this point, don't misunderstand. Preaching is not receiving new revelation from God. Now that Christ has come, now that He has fulfilled the promises of God, now that He's accomplished redemption, established His kingdom, taken, sent His um, apostles to take His message to the nations, now that He's told us in the New Testament the significance of His coming, the days of new revelation, verbal revelation from God, are over. So again, to say that something supernatural is going on in preaching is not to say that new revelation is coming to us from God, that we need to take our pens out and add to the, to the book of, of the Bible. That is not what's going on here. Think of Romans 10. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Unless, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now, without going into it in detail, Romans 10 makes clear the preaching of the word of Christ is ultimately Christ confronting sinners through his word. That's why it says there, Romans 10, how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? Look at Romans 10, 14 sometime. You'll see that the one who is heard in preaching is not the preacher, it is Christ. Preaching is not Christ speaking new things to us. Preaching is rather Christ speaking through his written word as his poor ambassador proclaims it. And in, re in response to the, the preaching of the word, think of larger catechism 160. What is required of those that hear the word preached? Answer, it is required of those that hear the word preached that they attend upon it with diligence, preparation, and prayer, examine what they hear by the Scriptures, receive the truth with faith, love, meekness, and readiness of mind as the Word of God, meditate and confer of it, talk about it with others, and hide it in their hearts and bring forth the fruit of it in their lives. There is a lot there. Go read it and meditate upon that for yourself. In a real sense, what this answer is saying is that you have to be just as active in the preaching of the Word as the preacher is. You have to prepare for it. You have to pay attention to it. You have to discern what you're hearing, and you have to put to work what you are hearing. And just to focus on one thing from that catechism answer, 
Notice how it says, you have to receive the truth of the sermon. How? You have to receive the truth of the sermon as the word of God. That's because when the sermon is biblical, it carries biblical authority. As the pastor applies biblical principles, wisdom, ways of thinking, applying implications to various matters, that carries biblical authority that we are obligated and privileged to live out. As the pastor, as so long as he is not making stuff up, giving his half-baked opinions, if he is applying biblical reasoning to any area of life, that, that must be received as biblical and must be practiced as such. Biblical preaching carries biblical authority and power. So since Paul is talking about the, the value and the power of his preaching and how his preaching was received by the Thessalonians, think about how Luke records that for us in Acts 17. Acts 17, the first few verses, as, as he records um, Paul's ministry to the Thessalonians. Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So it is this specifically, this message that Luke records, that's the message that the Thessalonians heard from Paul and accepted. It's that message of how Jesus suffered, how Jesus rose from the dead, that the Thessalonians recognized as a message from God and not the opinion of Paul. It was Paul's proclamation of Christ that God used to convict and convert these believers in Thessalonica. And in that sense, it is no different today. You and I, destined for God's wrath because of our sin, can now hear the proclamation of Jesus Christ crucified and raised, he who suffered in our place to pay our penalty, he who was raised from the dead to bring us to God, receive that word, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Every time you hear the word of Christ faithfully proclaimed, you hear the voice of Christ himself. That's because Jesus tells us in John 10, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Every time we hear Christ faithfully proclaimed, we hear Christ, and we are obligated and privileged to follow him and not go after the voice of anyone else. Thirdly and finally, we see the power of God's word, the power of God's word, and that's at the end of verse 13. As Paul makes reference there to the word of God, which is at work in you believers, the ones who believe. Think about what Paul is saying there. Perhaps this, is, uh, this doesn't get the attention that it deserves, this particular phrase. The Word of God continues to have an effect in the lives of these believers, the lives of all believers. That's how powerful the Word of God is. It has an ongoing, an ongoing transforming supernatural energy to it. This word that Paul uses there, this word at work, it is in the present tense. It has an ongoing effect in the lives of God's people. The Bible is not a dead book that does nothing as soon as you close it. 
The sermon is not some lifeless speech that dissipates as soon as it is over. Jesus Christ, speaking through His Word, that carries an ongoing energy. That, that's, and that's the, roughly the word Paul uses, an energy at work in God's people, an energy that carries a, an ability to work power in the heart of the believer and the life of the church. The Word can do what nothing else can do. It can go to work with the energy of God Himself in the recesses of your heart. There is an operative, effectual power that comes from the Word because it is the Word of the living and life-giving God. I can remember at certain points in my, in my own life the power of God's work, God's Word. I remember when I was an apathetic young man with no desire for the things of God, coming across Deuteronomy 32:39 and being wrecked. See now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God beside me, I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. And that woke me up, and I begged God for mercy in reading it. I remember hearing a sermon at a dark and difficult time, and 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24 was the, the instrument of God's sweet and healing grace. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And that was refreshment to my heart and sustaining grace to press on. How many of us could share such significant portions of Scripture that convicted and helped us in specific times and seasons of life? The Bible can do what no picture no television show, what no movie could ever hope to do. It can go to work in the depths of our hearts, transforming us from glory to glory, equipping us for every good work. Heidelberg Catechism 98 says it very helpfully. May not pictures be tolerated in churches as books for the people? Answer, no. For we should not be wiser than God who will not have his people taught by mute idols, but by the lively preaching of his word. You go look in, in Calvin sometime and see how he goes off on the images that are tolerated in the churches and goes off by saying, there would be no use for images if pastors did their jobs in unpacking the living and life-giving word of God. The God-breathed scripture which carries the life-giving energy of God himself as it is proclaimed by Christ through his ambassador, when God has given us such means of grace, how dishonoring it is to him to make use of impotent images and means instead. So you see the point. Unlike the word, the product of any mere man, the word of God is so powerful that it can change you. Commentator Jeff Wema puts it helpfully, much more than a fancy human message that caught their fleeting attention at one brief moment in time, the gospel instead is an ongoing source of divine power in the lives of the Thessalonian Christians, and I will add, in all Christians. So in conclusion, let us note two things. First of all, notice how Paul describes here what the Thessalonians did with God's word 
They didn't just hear it, they accepted it. There's a difference. You can hear the word, remember what it says, articulate the truth, but so can Satan. Don't be a hearer merely of the word, be a doer of it. Do what the word says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Accept God's word, receive it in your heart, live in light of it. Psalm 119, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. What Jesus prays in John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That is why we need the continual working of God's word within us to put remaining corruption to death and to grow in God's grace. Think of how Paul describes the word in Philippians 2.16, referencing how we hold fast to the word of life. That is how God's word can be at work in us continually. It is the word that gives life. It is a life-giving word. Again, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So it is an all or nothing situation. Without God's word, you are stuck in the darkness of your sin and misery. But with God's word, you are set free to walk in the light of God's presence. I came across this recently in my own private worship. Think of David's sin with Bathsheba. We, we all probably know the story. David's at home when he should be out at battle with his army. He sees Bathsheba. He commits adultery inwardly and then outwardly with her. He attempts to cover up his sin, having Bathsheba's husband Uriah come home. And when that doesn't work, he commands that Uriah be put at the forefront of battle to be killed. So we could ask why. Why did David do all this? Was it simply because David's a sinner? Because he couldn't help himself? Because Bathsheba was worth all the mess that he caused? Nathan confronting, the prophet Nathan confronting David gives us the reason. 2 Samuel 12, verses 9 and 10. Nathan said to David, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And as if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Did you catch what God says through Nathan to David there? You have despised the word of the Lord, and then one verse later, you have despised me. David's sin, we could say, stemmed from his despising and disregarding God's word. 
As Calvin says, if faith turns away from the word, it falls. Therefore, take away the word and no faith will remain. But more than that, to despise the word of the Lord is to despise the Lord himself. God puts his word on par with himself as he confronts David, which shows us that our attitude toward the Bible reveals our attitude toward the author of the Bible, God himself. Secondly, we see here that we are to put the word to work in our lives. We are to read the Bible. We are to read all of it. Pray Psalm 119, 18 before you read, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Choose one particular book that you will master over the course of your life. Write down portions of the Bible by hand. Memorize particular portions, listen to it, talk about it, think about it, pray through it, obey it. Peter Van Maastricht shows us how we're to have affection for the Word of God. He says, we're to have an affection toward the Scripture, an affection so inclined that we honor Scripture as we would God speaking to us with His own mouth. We should honor its commandments with such great submission, its prohibitions with such great pains and aversion, its promises with such great delight and desire, and its threats with such great fear and concern, all as if we had God speaking such things in our presence. Van Maastricht goes on to say, explaining the the efficacy, the the power of Scripture as we see it in in this passage. He says, one property, one attribute of Scripture is its efficacy, on account of which power is attributed to it, by which it is called able and active, and is said to work effectively. For this reason, it's compared to various things that, that excel in power, like water, fire, a hammer, two-edged sword, a sharp de- double-edged sword, and thunder. The word and spirit are united to one to the other, and the gospel is said to be the ministry of the spirit, and its efficacy is not in word alone, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, since the Spirit acts through the Word. This efficacy penetrates into the inmost heart, uncovers its secrets and hidden recesses, amazingly afflicts, pierces, and crushes a person's spirit, illumines the mind, regenerates and converts the heart, kindles faith, sanctifies the whole person, strengthens so that one might overcome the world, consoles, saves eternally since it is able to save souls. In that quote I I just read, there are around 30 scripture passages cited. And this is not at all to make us feel guilty that we don't read the Bible as often as we should. It's rather to taste and see afresh what we confess this evening in Shorter Catechism 2. The Word of God contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments is the only rule to direct us what? how we may glorify and enjoy Him. The Word of God gets us more of God. The Word of God is the means by which we taste and see His goodness, know His friendship and covenant, and drink from the river of His delights. It's why the psalmist cries out, I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you, and let your rules Help me. Psalm 119, 174, and 5. More to be desired are the rules of the Lord than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Psalm 19, 10. That is why the word is so precious 
the Word of God will get us more of the living and life-giving God Himself, our blessedness and reward now and forever. And may the living and life-giving Word of our God dwell richly in our hearts. Amen.